Welcome to a new conversation with Hanin Peretz, episode 9, titled A Transgender Life. Joy Layden, a transgender, is a professor at Yeshiva University Stern College for Women and an award-winning author and poet. We met a number of years back and had an insightful and fabulous conversation. Now, I'm delighted to continue our conversation. Enjoy. Hi, Joy. It's a delight sitting across from you uh, once again. Uh, the last time we met was about three years ago during the summer. Uh, you were giving a talk here at HBI, the Hadassah Brandeis Institute, and um, Shula Reinert, who's the director of the Hadassah Brandeis Institute, invited me to come listen to your talk. And uh, you were speaking to some students and, and some other guests, and um, I was there as well and asked you some questions. We had a really nice give and take, and. Uh, after that, I asked you if we could meet in private, and we had this uh, long conversation outside of the library on a nice Massachusetts summer day. Um, and now we're sitting here again across each other, and um, thank you for taking the time to meet with me and to uh, speak once again. Oh, it's a pleasure. That was Our conversation was a high point of the summer for me. Well, well for me too. What particularly did you find it uh, interesting about it? Mm. Well, I what I found most interesting was the the quality of your listening. Um, you were very interested in the story of my life and my relation to gender, and you. Um, you were curious, which I've come to realize is, um, actually, this is through a lot of therapy, I've come to realize this, curiosity is a way that human beings are when we're in a place of wholeness, when we're not caught up in anxiety. Curiosity is one of the traits that, that we see. You were, you were curious and you were, so curiosity means you're interested in something you don't know already. But the way that you heard what I was saying was not taking my life and putting it into categories that were familiar to you. You were listening to my life, and I felt reaching into your spiritual tradition and spiritual practice um, for places that had the largeness for my life to fit in as it was to me and also in ways that inter that you saw as intersecting with your own life as a as an alive complicated human being um, and i thought that was fantastic and you you named what i was doing in a way that i hadn't quite heard before you said that it that it was um, about authenticity and this is the way that I've, you know, because I've often thought of our conversation, I've reprocessed the memory, so I don't, you know, I may have changed things. Um, but I understood you as saying that in your life and in your tradition, authenticity is a crucial element of the relationship between the human being and God. And that so you were able to, apart from issues of halakha, custom, practice, categories, names, when you heard something that related to authenticity to you, 
you saw that as a core value of the human soul. It's something that human souls need, we need to aspire to and work toward, and otherwise we can't enter into the full relationship with God. But is that, a, am I misremembering here? I, I don't particularly remember, mm. but uh, that sounds good. <laughs> sounds good, and it does sound like something that I, w- I would say, okay? Uh, what I recall from our conversation was that you gave me the window into a life and a reality that was completely foreign to me mm-hmm. and remains foreign to me. Um, and uh, I found it it was fascinating to learn about it and also to know that uh, you're one individual, but there are others out there like you. And what I'm really... Um, interested today is if we could sort of reenact that conversation if possible uh if you're okay with that um and could you take me back Mm. to that i don't know three Mm. four-year-old child Mm. who is having this awareness Mm. that how 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 is it in the how Mm. does a three four-year-old see it and and Mm. feel it so here's where the uh intense retrojection of adult consciousness. I just have to put a caveat there. I wish I had a videotape of my three or four year old mind. But the first memory that I have of realizing that my sense of myself was different from the way other people saw me was my first day of preschool. Because when I went into the uh, into the room, I ran toward what I saw as my natural peer group. I didn't think about it. I just ran toward this group of girls. And they all jumped up and ran away from me. And I was completely baffled. And so I I tried again. And again, they jumped up and ran away. And this time they were giggling. And they thought that I was playing some kind of game where I was chasing them. And I was just trying to play with them and I and then there you know I just didn't understand what was going on and I don't remember how I talked to myself after that I do remember the um, the very strange feeling that what seemed natural to me seemed unnatural to them and uh, the next thing that I remember was when I was you know five or six years old, and by that time I'd already made um, a crucial decision, and one that was, in a, you know, there's a sense of this identity which is unusual for people, and then there's what you do with that sense of who you are. And by that age, I had already decided that this was something that I had to hide, that my life depended on hiding it. What I was really afraid of was if people knew who I really was, I would not be loved. You made this shift in your 40s. So where were you in life at that point in time? Mm. So that I had, other than the fact that I was miserable and hoping to die soon all the time, I had a really good life. I was married, had three children. I loved the children. I loved being a parent. Um, I still love the children. 
still love being a parent. They were, you know, they were small children. And so it's hard to be with small children. But I, I loved that. Um, it was like other lives that had complications. The family lived in Massachusetts. I taught in New York. I would had to go back and forth. That was terrible. I hated leaving them all the time. And, um, but I had a job that I loved, not just liked. I really loved. Uh, so my life had all these great things going for it. And I was writing poetry, and I love writing poetry. And, uh, and I just hoped I wouldn't live that long because it was getting harder and harder. Were you able to identify the point of hardship? Oh, yeah. It was because of having to live as a man. That simple. That, yeah, that was, well, that, yeah, that was the thing that I felt. There were other things that I should have been more upset about. I mean, the, my marriage had real problems in it. Um, I, but I was codependent, and I wasn't experiencing it as a marriage that had, you know, should I get out of this marriage? I didn't think that way. I was like, this was my marriage. I'm just in this relationship. It's not a choice. Did it have anything to do with your, with your, you know, wanting, being trapped mm. or, you know? I want to say no, but a lot of it didn't have anything to do with that. There were patterns of relationship that my, uh, my ex and I got together when we were very young. We both came from abusive Households. We were both starved for love. We both didn't really know how to have a healthy, loving relationship. And because we grew up together, we kind of grew into each other. There wasn't a, a point at which I think either of us said, really, is this, is this good for me? Is this the way? It was just, this was life, and it was together. Um, but the gender stuff was part of it. I had come out to her when we were in college. We were sophomores. And I, I had oh, interrupted you. No, yeah. when you say you came out to her in, in college, you came out to her as what? As trans, what I, we would now call trans. I, I. How um, did you describe it then? I am pretty sure that I used this language of I've always. I think I'm, I said to her, I've always felt like a woman. I wanted her to know that. I wanted to. I think I wanted to see if I could be loved and still be known that way. And did you encounter other people like you? Did you read literature that, that sort of exposed you to this world? Yeah. Or was it more in sort of a complete isolation without nothing, knowing anything about other people's experiences? Mm. When I look into the mirror, mm. I hope to see a woman, mm. and all I see is a man. There wasn't very much literature when I was growing up, and there was no internet. So the stuff that I found, I had to like find in library card catalogs, and libraries had to, you know, little branch libraries, I don't know, Rochester, New York, they didn't have large transsexual sections. By the time I was in college, which also it didn't have classes about this, it just wasn't a category of being human that was on many people's radar. Um, so I had read a few things, including, unfortunately, 
one of the infamous uh, books of anti-trans hatred called The Transsexual Empire um, by an anti-trans feminist. And when I read that, I would repl I replayed chunks of it over and over again because I was trying to keep myself from becoming myself. I was really terrified of it because, you know, I would be loveless. I would be a monster. And that's what she said. You know, to her, trans women, she doesn't even think about trans men really, but trans women are monsters at best. At worst, we're even worse than that. We're, the patriarchy has sent us to infiltrate and destroy the women's movement and the medical profession is trying to make money off us. I mean, it's, we're just the worst kind of tools of all kinds of forces of repression. But what really struck me was her, her disgust for trans women. And so I would tell myself, yeah, you need to live like a man because... Don't go there. So when I came out to my then-girlfriend, I had very little language to say this in. I knew the term transsexual, but I, I don't think I said that. I think I said, you know, I've always felt like a woman. And she said, well, I'm a woman and I don't know what that feels like. So what are you talking about? And I had very little to say. I still think that's a valid point. This, this thing that I call female gender identification, it's mysterious. And so she said, which was true. I can only be with somebody who looks and acts like a man. So I don't care how you feel, or I don't mind how you feel. And I knew that what she was saying is, I'll love you even though I know you feel this way, which doesn't make much sense to me, as long as you continue to live and act like a man, which is, you know, I'd say par for the course for a heterosexual woman. That's kind of the way it works. Um, but that was an abuse that's the model of an abusive relationship somebody says i will love you as long as you aren't yourself and i'll really love you or as long as you are what i want you to be that's right and she didn't mean it to be abusive she didn't chain me up or put a gun to my head to me this was the best model of love that i had ever had you know how i feel and you will still love me um but to me the source of my misery was this feeling, and it particularly really heightened after I had children, and I felt there, I'd hold them, and I would feel the love radiating from them, and I would feel so much love for them. And as I said, it felt like their love was passing right through me because I, I knew that I wasn't the person that they were loving. Uh, and it was excruciating. I just, I did. I wanted to be the, I wanted to be there as who I was, to love and be loved. I think it was probably the thing I wanted most as a child. I didn't want to have to choose between being loved and being real. It sounds very mystical, very mysterious, but at the same time very real. As a poet, you're, you're sort of a master of language. <laughs> language are your tools to express mm. and to communicate. Uh, but yet, in some ways, mm. even what you experience so deeply and intimately, the words aren't fully there. Mm. To, to give it a picture that can make it as clear as you know, this notepad. That's right. And I think also the words that I have 
we're not designed to point toward experiences like this. So we have language, I, I, there are a lot of experiences that we don't have language to really adequately describe, but this is definitely not something that we have developed much language to talk about the, the experience of. The closest that I've come to seeing language like that is people who are suffering from something that is really quite different. It's uh, body dysmorphia. There are people who come to feel like their arm isn't their own, for example, and they insist on cutting it off because it's so horrible to be attached to something that is not you. And when I read that, I was like, yeah, I relate to that. I felt that I was being forced to be attached in this most intimate way. What's more intimate than having something be part of your body to something that wasn't me? And in, but in my case, it was this, it was my body, but also what was made of my body, what my body meant in the world. And I don't, I don't think I could separate those things. And probably we don't. I think that part of being human is as soon as we learn to think, we know that our bodies are being given meanings. That's what gender is, it's a whole system of meanings that's given to our physical forms that like cats don't care whether they're male or female, but human beings, they tend to. Um, so that feeling of being stuck with what wasn't me and having to present what wasn't me as me, the people who were describing this body dysmorphia, they seem to be using language not to describe my experience exactly, but they, they were describing some of that that inexplicable horror, inexplicable to most people, that um, that made it impossible for me to feel like I was really alive most of the time. So, would you say it's almost like it's almost dreamlike, mm. in that in a dream you are experiencing something, but you are not controlling it, mm. and your sort of outer body. Uh, your body is doing its own thing. The, the the events of the of the dream are happening on their own, and you may want to control it, but you can't control it because you're in a dream, uh, and that's in a certain sense where the horrors come in a in a nightmare, is when something is happening in your in your vision, and you want to change it, and you can't. That's right. Yes. And it's hard for me to remember a lot of my life as a male. And I think it's, I hadn't thought of it this way before, but it's, it's at least a little bit related to the difficulty of remembering the way things were in a dream where you're there and not there. Because the, I think memories are given substance by connection with our bodies to a great extent. So when we're not feeling connected with our bodies, I think it's hard to form strong, lasting memories. When I do remember my childhood, it's generally from more like a documentary or something. Now you go through a process to transform mm. your body from that of a male to a female. And when you did that, you felt, once again, sort of, you're whole, you're alive, you're your present. Now, I'm curious, 
is that need to make the, the physical trend in other words mm. in, in your spirit in your mind in your psyche you're a female uh, but your body is not and therefore because your body is not it prevents you from doing certain things or is it that you could do anything you want but since you're in a male body the way it's perceived by others is not fitting so you won't conduct yourself mm. in the female way until you get that female body that allows you to fit in the process of transition from i and i don't know if it's the same for everybody i i doubt it but for me the feeling was that i was growing myself from the outside in in a certain kind of way that i didn't know who i was as a person who had a body that expressed that made me visible in the world. And again, if you think about a, an infant, one of the first things that newborns do even is they, they look for a parent's face, but what they really want is they want to feel that they're being seen. And I hadn't felt that I was being seen because I didn't feel that the, my body made me visible in the world. It didn't, I didn't identify with it. Um, so the, the process of the physical process of gender transition went along with these psychological and I would say also spiritual processes of becoming. It was only one component of it. I thought it was the whole shebang. When I read about it, I thought, well, my problem is just this physical problem and you change the body. And, but as I discovered, it was a process of becoming a person, not a process of changing a body, discovering who I was, who I wanted to be. It's like, if I were a real person, what kind of person would I want to be? That had been a theoretical question my whole life. Well, the answer is you just have to act like this guy. That's your only choice. And now it's like, oh, I'm a real person. Now I have to figure out, do I want to be a good person? And what does that mean? And, you know, do I do this in the world? Do I do that in the world? I had no idea what kind of a person I even wanted to be, much less what kind of person I, I would become. Do you ever think to yourself, what would have happened, what type of life you would have lived had you been born 100 years ago, mm. 200 years ago, before modern medicine discover the ability to have hormone treatment? I've generally been horrified by imagining living in any time before uh, flush toilets. Um, and now I would add cell phones to that. So, um, But based on, you know, I was living as though this was impossible for me. I think I'm more likely to have been a person who um, killed myself young um, because... Sticking it out wasn't possible? That's right. Do you have any um, bitterness or, or anger mm -hmm. towards the creator of life mm -hmm. that created you this way? Mm -hmm. Uh, and not in a very in a simpler uh, mm. 
body and soul, body and spirit. I have, I've had very complicated feelings about that. But when I was growing up, I felt that God was the only real companion that I had. And so I don't remember, again, this is the video, I don't have the videotape, but I don't remember when I was growing up a moment of rejecting God because I, I think my life depended on the sense of God's presence. And I know that I had a feeling of being particularly created. And that's a, that was a very mixed feeling. I think it's, I think it's an amazing gift for human beings to feel that we are created. We didn't just kind of happen by accident or roll off the biological assembly line, but we were made. And I had that feeling of being made because I was, I was so weirdly made, weirdly put together. But I was put together in a way where being who I was really hurt. And I remember pleading with God to change me and offering God all kinds of horrible bargains. And in this, this is quite common among trans kids. Many people have told me sometimes the same prayers that I said, they'll tell me that they said. And um, the heartbreak, but the, the heartbreak of waking up and you're, you're, you're not whole, you're not yourself, you don't, your body doesn't match who you, the sense of who you are. At the same time, the feeling that that could have happened reflects an extraordinary degree of, it's not even faith, it was like this awareness of God and God's power that is, I think, a gift. It's not something I had to think about theologically. I didn't have to fast or grow or study or anything. It was, it was built into my the disjunction between my body and my spirit gave me access into some glimpse of the reality of God and God's presence in my life. And that both was hurting. Does it make sense to say that for, say, someone like me, mm. uh, sort of an average Joe off the street? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, what you experienced, or what you're experiencing, but more importantly, what you experienced, is completely foreign. Mm -hmm. It's it's in a, in some ways it's it's I'm have, it's hard mm -hmm. for me to to relate to. Yes. Uh, it's you know I, you know you relate mm -hmm. to something by f by finding something similar mm -hmm. within yourself that you could say okay I, I get mm -hmm. it it's something like this. I mean the closest I got to relating to what you're describing as a dream. Mm. Uh, is that fear or, or, mm. or am I missing something in, in my, my difficulty mm. of relating? I think that that is a great question because I've come to feel that there are two ways of looking at, I'm just going to call it trans experience, it's a very vague category, but one is, and this is the common way for obvious reasons, we think of it as something that is really different. 
That's what makes it visible. That's what makes it interesting. Very few people have this experience. And the more we think about it, the more different it becomes. And I think that the, there is truth in that perspective. But I've also come to think, and this is the basis of the, the book that I published last year, that in another way, trans experience is just a statistically unusual form of human experience. And there's not nothing, but there's very little in my experiences that grow out of being trans that are really disconnected from the human, human experiences of other people. I think that most of us have those kinds of experiences or at least awareness that as even when we're the most comfortable being who people think we are, like I love being a teacher, but I know that sometimes in my classroom, I'm thinking non-teacherly thoughts, right? <laughs> or I have non-teacherly desires to like go eat something. Um, and so I know that I'm more than the roles that I'm committed to being, even the roles that I, that I love. And that's really the, the common denominator between transgender experience and the rest of human experience. It's that somebody like me, I make that visible in a spectacular way. But for most people, some of the time, that also becomes clear. You know, your parents always thought you would be a doctor and you end up going off and joining the Peace Corps and becoming a farmer or something, you know. Or I have many students, some students have terrible fights with their families because they're becoming more from. They maybe have started studying Torah with a Chabad rabbi and they feel like, oh, this is really the truth, you know, and their families are like, you are crazy. You know, you're becoming strange. You look strange. This is not the little girl that we that we raised and we expected. We're in this modern Orthodox culture. We don't do this crazy stuff. And now you won't eat at my house and all of this kind of stuff. So the things that are, they're not, it's not the same as a gender thing, but actually if you think about it, it's not any less complete a life change. And in some cases, it it really upsets the people that you leave behind. But you say to yourself, but this is true life for me. I'm not going to feel authentic. I'm not going to feel fully alive unless I do this. And I'm sorry that it hurts you. And I'm sorry that it disrupts you. But this is part of my truth that I can't turn away from. So you're taking your personal life experience in this area of trends, and you're magnifying not your particular experience, but the spirit within it. The, the, the overarching, uh, the overarching transition or the overarching living that you went through in, individually, yourself, mm -hmm. and how others related to you and relate to you. And you're saying, this could be applied in so many areas of life. And what you're trying to do is give the people, the individuals who are making this transition, a perspective that supports it or, or justifies it or 
enables them to, to do this. And at the same time, those who are around them, the perspective and understanding of how to relate to these people who are making these transition, trans, transitions. So you're taking your personal experience and you're, as a good teacher, making it into a teacher's moment for a broader, for a broader world. Yes, and I felt like, in this I feel like I'm following your example because when you responded to my story by saying this is about authenticity, it's not just about gender. So, as you've said here, the, the gender stuff feels far away to you. It's not something that you can connect with. Thank God. I'm very happy that most people don't know those feelings. They're not good feelings to have. But I know that authenticity and the struggle for authenticity and sometimes the sacrifices we have to make for authenticity. This is an aspect of life, my life story, that I think is not foreign to your life story. Do you have any questions for me? <laughs> I should have done this earlier, but... Well, I want to thank you for, you know, it's always wonderful. It's, uh, it's an honor to get to talk with you. And I guess what we haven't talked about is... You are somebody who is, you face in two directions. You, you are holding the openness to a world that includes people like me, and you're holding faithfulness to a tradition that doesn't include people like me. And that seems like a really complicated position, and I'm just wondering if you can give me any insight into how that works or feels for you. Let me correct you. I hold faithful to a tradition that takes issue with the act of the transition. Mm. The treatment and the, the, the transition from a male body to a female body is where mm. the faith takes issue. Mm. But who you are as a person today, um, as, both as a human being, as a Jew, remains complete and what you did in the past you did in the past it's it's not for me to to judge or to determine and in a certain sense in this context in this moment in this conversation to a degree is not relevant mm. because it's something that you did in the past and it's not my place uh to to judge it or to does that answer I feel like we could, I could very happily interview you for a podcast <laughs> and, and ask other questions. But, yes. um, but I do hear you saying something that's really important, which is that there's nothing in, the, in, the, in your tradition or practice that keeps you from encountering people as they are. It might become complicated if I came to you living as a man and saying, I need to do this, and what, what should I do? And then you might be torn by compassion and halakha, and this is a familiar problem that people have. But those are unusual circumstances. Those are, that's like the liminal test case. Often when people are um, filled with anxiety about trans things. They focus on the extreme case of discomfort and where do I sit there. But the more important thing is 
what do we do with the people we encounter right now? We're not responsible for what they did. We're not responsible for what they're going to do. The question is, are we willing to be there with them right now? And you're saying, yes. Looking at what you did in the past or what a person did in the past is a case for judgment. Mm -hmm. And judgment is given only to only one, mm -hmm. and that's to God. Mm -hmm. I'm not God, I, I know. I, I don't want to play the role of God. Mm -hmm. God forbid to play that. Uh, it's sacrilegious, it's wrong, and it's misplaced. That's why I'm not only more than comfortable, I'm delighted to be able to have this mm -hmm. conversation with you. And I believe more people would benefit if they're able to understand that uh, they're not God. <laughs> uh, they're, you know, they're about connection, connecting with people mm -hmm. and trends and communicating with people as opposed to judging people. Mm. Amen. <laughs> thank you. Once again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening. To receive notifications of our latest podcasts, please subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app like Apple Podcasts or Google Play. We welcome your feedback and thoughts on our website, anewconvo.com. That's A-N-E-W-C-O-N-V-O.com. And on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash anewconvo.